Genesis chapter 50, the last few verses of this wonderful book. Reading chapter 50, verses 22 to 26. Reading in God's holy and inspired word. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. I do pray that you would fulfill your promise of working your spirit in us this morning, uh, in me to guide my lips that I would not uh, stray from the truth of your word, and for your people here listening, that they would be fertile ground to receive good gospel seeds, that as we've already been instructed this morning, we would love you with our whole hearts, and we would learn better how to do that and to love our neighbors as evidence of our great love for you. So please be working in us this morning and even now. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the last segment in this wonderful history book that is Genesis. While this is the end of this book that tells the beginning of the history of the world, uh, the beginning of humanity, the beginning of sin, and the beginning of God's gracious works among men who sin, it is far from the end of the story, right? So that's about the only significance of the title. I learned this morning that it's actually the title of a really neat song. I didn't know about it, so I can claim independent inspiration for that title. So the purpose is merely that Genesis is the book of beginnings. This is, obviously, the last verses in that book, but the story continues. It is but one segment in the united whole that is God's revelation. Interestingly and importantly, as we look at the continuity and the integrity of the canon, we see that this segment continues, so this segment meaning these few verses at the end of Genesis, continues seamlessly into the next segment, which is Exodus. Uh, Just as chapter 35 ended with Isaac's death and burial, and chapter 36 records a genealogy, which then the next few verses after that talk about Jacob carrying the torch forward, We see here in ending chapter 50, Joseph's death followed, next page, first few verses of Exodus giving a genealogy as it were, and then verse six of Exodus continuing the story of those descendants carrying the torch forward. So we see those linkages that show us the proper order of the canon. This is no redaction by people hundreds of years later, but this is God's inspiration, tying together the threads of history from generation to generation to generation to generation, men of faith carrying the gospel forward even unto us. All of God's word fits together, showing us there is one divine author and one purpose throughout all of history. The purpose of the Bible, uh, taken as a whole, introduced to us here in Genesis all the way through to the end of the canon in Revelation, is to show us who God is, who we are, 
how we got into this situation that's been referred to multiple times in this worship service, that is messed up, messed up lives, messed up culture, messed up families, messed up jobs, messed up governments, and how it is we ultimately get out of this mess, right? To the blessed future, ultimately, where the mess is solved, where God's people are reconciled to him. We live in a place where there is no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more apostasy, no more fighting against God. That is what we look forward to. That's the end. And this is the beginning of that end. Genesis then fits well into this overall story in that it shows us who God is, who man is, especially who are the Israelites and how they got into the situation they're in in Egypt and that they will surely get out of it, right? So for the few verses before us today, let us be confident that they instruct us that God will surely visit his people, the emphasis on surely and will, and that redemption then will surely come. Because quoting here from verse uh, 24, friends, God will surely visit you. He will bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And this is a precious promise. All promises being yes and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at these verses under two headings as I have it there in your outline. Uh, The first being the very real and solemn fact of dwelling in Egypt. And second, the very real and hope-inspiring future that we have beyond Egypt. So first, they were indeed in Egypt. Reading again verses 22 and 23. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. On uh, previous occasions, in uh, the last few chapters of this book, I've noted the significance of the word dwell, or as the uh, ESV translates it, to remain. Literally, it means to sit, just to be in one place, as it were. Encompasses the idea of a settled existence, as opposed to, so contrasted with, uh, passing through a place just you know, being on the caravan with your tent on your back type of thing, passing through in a pilgrimage. So here the point is, Joseph and the others we'll see, were to dwell, to be settled in Egypt. Elsewhere though, this whole period of the Israelites being away from Canaan is called a sojourn. That's in Exodus 12, verse 40. So we might at first glance say, well how can this time be both a sojourn, the idea of passing through, and a settled dwelling, the idea that you're just sitting in one place. How can it be both of those which seem to be different in terms of temporary versus semi-permanent? Well, I believe the solution lies in the context. From the larger perspective of the patriarch's history, that is in the whole lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes who ultimately returned to Canaan, the time in Egypt is a sojourn, right? When you take the larger picture, this settling period is temporary. And so that larger perspective, It's a sojourn. This narrower perspective of Joseph's life, the scope of Joseph's life, is a settling time. He settled in Egypt. 
an application is clear for us. While in the grand scheme of things, our life on earth is but a vapor, multiple places in scripture speak of that. The idea of vapor is temporary, right? It evaporates, it moves on to a different state. And so we are just passing through right now on a pilgrimage, a travel, as it were, on our way to heaven. But yet, we still, at the more local, temporary perspective, the years of our life, as we experience them, we have a responsibility to settle down, to build houses, to plant vineyards, as we read of it elsewhere. The fact that in the future, we're gonna be moved to a different place doesn't eliminate the fact that presently, we have work to do in the present, right? Future's future, now is now, so now we are dwelling in the future, we will complete our journey and pass on. So all that to say, Joseph, by way of his personal experience and the people of his generation and a couple generations to follow, had a settled existence in Egypt, and especially Joseph here in the latter part of his life. I mean, earlier he was passing through as he came to Egypt, but now he is settled. His descendants immediately after him are to be settled, but on that larger perspective, it is a passing through. But notice also in our text, very explicit words, that he was not dwelling there alone. We see this in the phrase, he and his father's household are to dwell in Egypt. Uh, We don't have details in scripture that tell us how long Joseph continued in his service to the Pharaoh. In that context, he would have been sort of in the capital city. Remember that the Israelites being kind of the outsiders because of their trade as shepherds were relegated to a different area up in Goshen. So we don't know whether they lived together for the last years of Joseph's life or if they continued to be apart. But at least insofar as they are in Egypt, not in Canaan, they are dwelling together. So the text here speaks of Joseph and his relatives dwelling together in Egypt. And we could use the idea that you know, we're all on the same boat, so to speak, right? We're in this together. Whether he continued to work in the halls of government, you know, remotely, yeah, so to speak, of that time, or whether he sometime in his older age actually joined them living in Goshen, uh, either way, they were united, united by a common faith, united by a common covenant, united by a covenant, uh, common destiny. So all that they had in common, and truly they were dwelling together. And so the divine author here emphasizes the unity of experience among God's people. While Joseph had different responsibilities vocationally because of his office, because of his placement within the government, and even once he retired from that, he would have had different relationships. The people in uh, Egyptian society would have known about him and seen him differently, despite all those differences. But from God's perspective, he was in the same boat as the rest of his father's household. So properly stated here, he and his father's household, they together dwelt in Egypt. So friends, remember that each of us has different and unique callings as we dwell here in this sojourn. We shouldn't look down at others. We shouldn't envy others. We shouldn't covet their gifts. The body of Christ is made up of many members, hands, feet, you know, all those body parts as the uh, idea is conceived. The body of Christ is varied lots of variety, but it is one. We, each part, we need each other, right? What good is two Michael Elliots out there? That's one too many. (laughs) There need to be variety. Each of us has our place to serve each other, ultimately to serve the Lord. 
Well, the next phrase informs us how long Joseph lived. Simply stated, he lived 110 years. Uh, The vast majority of his life was in Egypt. Uh, If I remember correctly, it's age 17. If we do the math, piece together the clues is when he came down into Egypt. So he lived the vast majority of his life not in his homeland. The majority of it was outside of that land in Canaan. Interestingly, I don't know if there's any real significance to it, but interestingly, that's the same length of life recorded for Joshua. Uh, Ten years less than the life recorded for Moses, uh, significantly less, 37 years less than his father's life, the life of Jacob. So a reminder to us, we don't know how many years we have, right? Uh, I have a friend, another minister within the CPC, who's confident, and this is one of those guys, you don't like dismiss it when he says this. You're like, hmm, okay, I guess you know more than I do. And so he believes that there are people alive today that are going to live to hundreds of years old. That medical technology, whatever gene therapy, I really don't know what it is he's getting at, will get to the point where it's common to live hundreds of years. I don't know. That could be. Again, he's a smart guy, so I didn't just immediately dismiss him. But we don't know our future. Even if we get to a time, an era of human history, where the average lifespan is hundreds of years. Averages are averages. Averages have outliers. We could be one of those. Uh, In my work with Samaritan Ministries, uh, dealing with people's uh, medical needs, I can tell you there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, Insofar as we think of good health being normal, and illness or injury being wrongness as a deviation from that, a lot can go wrong. A lot of accidents, a lot of illnesses. So friends, let us remember that every day of of good health, of decent health, is a gift. And the ability to continue on, even in the midst of health trials, is a gift. Let us not uh, expect another 20, 30, 50 years. Uh, Easy to do when you're 15 or 20, right? Young men and women, (laughs) we really don't know what the future holds. I don't know if when uh, Joseph was 100, he thought, oh, my ancestors lived 120, 130, you know, I've got a long ways to go. Uh, We don't know his thoughts on the matter. We can only know looking back. We can only know once it's all done what the number of our days were. So let us use these years as they happen for his glory. Well, part of the blessing of long life, as it's highlighted here, is to see several generations of his descendants. The focus of verse 23 is the, um, the implications of a good long life, seeing his children's children to these multiple generations. That phrase there, third, and while uh, in my edition of the New King James it has the word generations italicized, meaning it's not in the original Hebrew, uh, it's implied. So the idea is that he saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, and then, as I read earlier, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh. So my call to mind, what's the significance of the third? What's the big deal with the number three? Well, I believe it's at least tied in a, a larger sort of theology of longevity or a theology of blessing is to uh, three different statements. Uh, two of them are in the different recordings of the Ten Commandments, uh, both at Exodus 20, verse 5, and uh, Deuteronomy 5, verse 9, in speaking of the second, yeah, second commandment, and I'll read it to you from Exodus 20. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love love me and keep my commandments. And then the third instance where this comes up is in Deuteronomy 23, and I'll read for you verses seven and eight. You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So notice three generations is the duration of God's judgment, as well as that time frame, the point at which these foreigners who've been sort of peripheral members of God's household are welcomed into the assembly. So here among Joseph's relatives, the point is not judgment or relief even from judgment, but rather the duration of these three generations speaks to the fullness. Sort of the the time has passed. We've gotten to that landmark and it is three or four generations. Things have run their full course. Joseph got to see that extended family line, and that truly is a blessing, especially when we consider that he'd been cut off from his own family, right? When he was 20, did he think he would see his brothers, his father, his nephews, his nieces? Did he think he'd ever have children and be able to raise them in the covenant community like it ended up happening? Certainly not. God is gracious. He blessed him to see that extended family line. One last point in this section, our first point in verse 23, is the phrase brought up on Joseph's knees. Uh, In verse 23, Joseph's grandchildren by way of Manasseh's son were brought up on Joseph's knees. So what is with that? Um, Best I could determine, and it's very rarely, really only one other instance to give us material to try and fill out the picture, is that it's a Hebrew idiom. depicting the idea of the close family connection, but more sort of latching onto that person as your progeny, carrying forth the family dynasty, as some of us speak of it. And that other instance is in Genesis 30, verse three, regarding Rachel and Bilhah. Uh, You know the context there, Rachel not being blessed with children. She wants children, must have children. And so she decides, let's have children by Bilhah, and those children will be from my knees. Uh, bear a child on my knees is the phrase there. So the idea is they would be hers by way of lineage, even though they weren't born from her body directly. So there the children born to Rachel's maid would count as her own. And so here it would appear that the sons born to Mocker were counted as Joseph's. Uh, It speaks to that close connection he had with his descendants. Again, the contrast that we should be thinking. Joseph, who was dragged away from his family, had no idea that he would ever be connected back with them. The complete reversal of that to the point where multiple generations being brought up in that close, familiar relationship. So he cultivated those close relationships with his descendants unto several generations. So by way of application to us, let us, as I said earlier, in terms of the length of our lives, not take for granted how long we may live. Who knows what car accidents or other illnesses are waiting for us tomorrow even. 
but also in terms of how long our lives go, uh, we don't know the future. Let us seize these opportunities. Let us be confident that we can have an influence or be closely involved with our descendants to, and with the younger generations. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, even perhaps great-great-great-grandchildren. And for the young, uh, do not think that you are so far removed from your forefathers that they don't have an interest in your life, that they don't have wisdom to share with you, that they don't have a heart to pour out to you and guide you on your way. So it is good, it is proper, it is even a blessing to have these multi-generational ties. Well, that's the first half of our text, dwelling in Egypt. Now we turn to the second part, hope for the future beyond Egypt. Let me read again verses 24 to 26. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So there's several aspects of this testimony. So most of this here is a quote from him, him speaking. So there's several aspects of this testimony that are really really important. Uh, And actually, since I used that word (coughs) testimony, I want to define what we mean by that. Uh, In Christian lingo, we often have these buzzwords, and one of them is certainly testimony. Uh, By that, we mean telling people about our personal relationship with Jesus, right? Or more specifically, how we came to know Jesus, how we came to be saved. But at heart, testimony speaks to and describes something that you've seen, Uh, A person who's called to testify in court is asked questions, what did you see? What did you hear? What do you understand based on what you saw and heard? That is the basis for our usage of the word testimony. So when you share your testimony, you're saying, this is what I've seen about Jesus. This is what I've heard about him. This is what I've experienced. This is what I know and understand based on the things I've seen, the things that I have heard. And I would encourage you to be thinking about your testimony. We're going to be having the next installment of our several uh, Great Commission workshops in uh, June. And so we'll be talking about how to uh, craft your testimony, how to communicate a testimony uh, when you're meeting with people or sort of fleeting conversations in an evangelistic context. So all that to to say, this is Joseph's testimony. What was it that Joseph had seen? What had he heard? What does he know for certain that he's passing on to his listeners that he encapsulates in these very brief words? So certainly the few verses here are not an exhaustive statement as we would thinking of it in a 21st century reformed or evangelical context. He's not talking about how he became conscious of his sin and how he understood Jesus as the Messiah. That's not worded here, right? Uh, finding mercy uh, is not explicitly stated. But as you have opportunity to ponder your testimony, as we'll discuss at that mini-conference, it is interesting to reflect here, how are these truths actually still stated here? And I want to pull out some of that for you. So in general, whether long or short, uh, a testimony 
accurately encompasses the things we see here. Joseph focuses on who he is and who God is. So first, who he is. That brief, those three words in the English, I am dying. That's who he is. He's mortal. He's short-lived. He is not infinite. He is not eternal. He knows who he is. I am dying. I'm not going to be here long. In the past, Joseph used his connections uh, to help his brothers, to settle them in a good place after having brought them out of the famine-stricken land. But the days of his ability to offer help and protection to his brethren are numbered. They're short-lived. He can't help them once he's gone. Uh, As parents, we understand that when our little ones are especially little, we want to do everything we can to protect them, right? We want to keep them from falling, from hitting uh, the corner table and things like this, but we can't do that forever. The very nature of being parents is to help them grow up where they can survive the world on their own because we can't be there forever for them. So here in his last words, Joseph sharing with them, I'm dying, my days are short. You're gonna have to take care of yourselves. But not actually that. He doesn't commend them to themselves. Through steps and stages, he has been preparing them and enforcing all along that they never were entirely under his care. They never should have seen themselves as entirely under their own care. And so what is he contrasting with his own humanity? The fact that he's finite, that he is frail, that he's just a man, that's contrasted with God, right? The contrastive participle there, but I, as a human being, am weak. I can't protect you very much longer. I never could do it all myself anyway. But God, God is eternal. He is omniscient. He is there forever watching over his people. God is not limited or temporary. He is almighty. Because of these divine attributes, he will certainly fulfill the promise made to the fathers. And notice that promise is in two parts. But before I move to this, I want to make sure you're clear here what I'm seeing. Hopefully you understand the same. The contrast, who God is and who man is, is an essential part of our testimony. Joseph stating who he is in terms of humanity, contrasted with who God is in terms of his divinity. God's divinity makes him surely able to fulfill his promises, which is the substance and really the majority of the wording of Joseph's testimony. So there's two parts to the promise that Joseph is clinging to, the promise that he is commending his hearers to also cling to and carry forward. So the two parts of that promise are one, to bring them out, and second, to wear, right? To bring them to the land that was given to their forefathers. I think it's important to see this as, as two subparts to the same promise. To merely bring them out doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't answer God's promise to have them settle Canaan. To get you out of Egypt doesn't require that you're in Egypt or in uh, Canaan. They could have headed south across the Sahara Desert. Would that have been better? That would not have been fulfilling the promise to settle back in Canaan. So again, there's two parts here, to bring them out and to bring them out back into the specific place that he had promised to future generations. And note that each of these promises or parts of the promise, has been stated before. They're not new. And you should be cautious when somebody in their testimony is telling you something new. That is always a red flag. 
But here, Joseph is speaking of things that no doubt his brethren would have known. He's not bringing up a new little fact to surprise them at the end and give them the wow factor as he's headed away. No, he is reinforcing what they've been told. He's reinforcing what he no doubt had specifically communicated to them. Uh, The promise to bring them out was told to Abraham in Genesis 15. Uh, It was stated to Joseph by his father in Genesis chapter 48. And of course, there's multiple instances of the promise to bring them and settle them in the land of Canaan. So all Joseph did was, uh, if we can use the sporting analogy of a relay race with a baton, is to pass the baton to the next person, right? Maybe to my children who don't watch sporting events and assuming maybe similar for the rest of you, <clears throat> the baton in the relay race, a little cylinder of aluminum or fiberglass, first guy runs the first lap and hands it off to the next, runs the next lap, and I understand most relays are four parts. So, continuing the race, leg by leg, until the final completion, crossing that finish line. From what I know of relay races, usually they are not won or lost in the slight variations of how fast each individual runner goes. Uh, Of course, it's important. You're never gonna get to world-class competition if you don't have each person operating at a world-class level, but assuming that among five Olympic-caliber teams in the gold medal round, what is it that propels one team ahead of another? Smooth handoffs. More often than not, what wins the gold medal among equally elite teams is four, three, right, from A to B, B to C, C to D. So there's three hands off, three handoffs. Those smooth handoffs, being out of step, or worse, dropping a baton, not handing it off within the boundaries of when you can start to do the handoff and when you gotta have finished it by, those are the things that take a team out of metal contention. That's what separates the winners from the runners up. So really, friends, consider how are we doing in the handoff? Right, the great handoff of the faith. We possess a baton. By grace, we endeavor, trusting God for the results, uh, his sovereign workings in our life. We desire to hand off these truths that we live or die by, to communicate those to the ones we love. During his life, Joseph pointed his brethren to the Lord, and here at the time of his death, he did the same. The content of the message is important. The consistency of the message important. And note also the uh, method of the message. He stated God's promises once as his personal testimony. That's verse 24. Then he implored his brethren to swear that they held to the same faith. That's the first part of verse 25. And then part of their vow was for them to commit to a concrete action as evidence of this vow, this statement of faith. That's the second part of verse 25. So to say it again differently, first, I, Joseph, believe this. Second, you all better embrace the same thing, so promise it to me, and as a check, as a way you can work this out in the future, here's something you're gonna do to show me, to show God, because I'm not gonna be here, I'm gonna be dead, to show God that you agree with this statement of faith. Joseph couldn't arrange a funeral possession uh, to take his remains back to Canaan like had been done for Jacob earlier in chapter 50. So he leaned, right, that that urging the 
do this, <laughs> the divine imperative really, insofar as these were inspired words, he leaned on his brethren to pass this commitment down to future generations, saying in effect, when the time comes, carry up my bones from here. By a solemn oath, it was understood this is really important. And then uh, by way of conclusion for this passage in verse 26. So if in verse 24 he said, I'm dying, here in 26, he dies. Conclusion comes quickly. This isn't like some of the patriarchs who you're like, I thought he was just about dead. And then all this history continues to happen. No, this is a quick end. There's no um, multiple months or unknown periods of time elapsing. It would appear that he realized he was close to the end, and very shortly after that, the end did come. And so he died at 110 years old. Uh, They embalmed him, which was the custom of the Egyptians uh, that involved packing herbs and solutions, wrapping up the body in cloths to preserve it. Uh, I don't necessarily see this as a compromise on Joseph's part, uh, as if he is syncretistically adopting the ways of the heathen, or worse yet, adopting their worldview. Because of course, right, the Egyptian idea, the purpose of embalming was to preserve the body for this uh, afterlife, which was not a biblical concept of the future. So I don't see Joseph as um, slipping in those directions. Uh, Perhaps it was a weak spot in his life though. Uh, I'm not dogmatic here. Uh, Perhaps he should have refused the procedure. Uh, We'll note, let me just read it. Now, uh, 1122 from Hebrews, we read, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. So two things are commended by the author of Hebrews. In faith, speaking of the departure from Egypt, in faith, commending them, sorry, commanding them to uh, deal with his bones appropriately. What's missing there? You know, embalming and the coffin. So I don't, it is theoretically possible that that is left out because it was a point of critique and the author of Hebrews is just wanting to focus on the positive. Uh, I don't see it necessarily as that. Uh, I believe it was just a convenient method uh, to be used as was necessary. Uh, we know that from Jewish burial practices, right, in the Holy Land, they would carve out caves, you would put the body on these shelves, it would decay, come back later, um, collect the bones. Well, perhaps in the Nile region, there weren't caves, right? You build, dig into a sandbank, it collapses. And so what are you going to do? Lay the body out in the open air while it desiccates? No, that wouldn't have worked. So perhaps just as a matter of convenience and of liberty, uh, the embalming happened. But the key thing was to tell them what the future held in terms of returning to Canaan and to tell them to bring back his bones. Those were the two important things. Those are the two things that the author of Hebrews commends him for, and praise God, those are the two things that did happen. So clearly, having been mentioned in the Hall of Fame of faith for those things, we can praise God that he worked these, both in the heart of Joseph, to emphasize them, communicate them to his descendants, and he also worked them in the heart of his descendants, insofar as they came to pass. Well, friends, to sum this up, and... uh, not to get overly emotional for the whole book of Genesis that we're wrapping up, because I didn't get to spend time with you through the whole thing, only in these latter chapters, these most recent years. But to sum up this text, and to try and put it in the context of the whole book, which as I've pointed out and we're well aware, is the beginning step through this whole journey of God's revelation preserved for us in his Bible. 
But to come back to the point I made at the beginning this morning, the focus here is the fact that God's people were in a foreign land, and that was not the end of it. Their present state was not the permanent thing. The present state was leading to a change. They had a sure hope that God would visit them and take them out. So brothers and sisters, the whole human race is in a similar situation now. Your family may be in its own Egypt-style situation, or you personally. Uh, Know that this today is not the end of the story. It is but one chapter in the unfolding of God's story, his big story, whereby, yes, things are broken. They really are broken. Things are painful and difficult, yet God heals the brokenness. He heals the pain and the hurt. So as Christians, united, by Christ, united to Christ by faith and having confidence in the full story as recorded, unfolding in these latter pages, we hope, right? Not as ones lacking a knowledge of what's gonna come. We hope precisely because we know what the future holds. As it's stated in Romans 5, 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is why we hope. So friends, be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we believe God's promises and act accordingly. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled that you have reached out to us. You've made us willing in this generation by giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit. You have changed our hearts. You have changed our minds. You have given us the precious gift of faith without which we would be desperate. We would be without hope. We would be clinging to all manner of idols and false visions for the future and even of the present, but yet we are different. So Lord, please sow in us greater hope, greater faith, that we would not look aside to the left or the right, but we would keep our eyes focused on the future, just as Jesus, for the hope that was set before him did not waver, Lord. Precious words, what he has accomplished for us, what he has empowered us to do for his glory. So please be with us, even this day, may we, Embrace the faith that Joseph implored to his brethren and also be engaged in activities to to back that up, Lord, to a watching world. May we show them what it means to be Christians, not to be Nebraskans or members of some political party, but Christians, Lord, in whatever callings you place us, people bought at a price, that price being the blood of your dear son. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.